This is the Art of Dental Finance and Management podcast brought to you by Art Wiederman, CPA with Ide Bailey. Whether it's taxes and investing or planning wisely, Art is the expert to make your dental practice profitable. At Ide Bailey, what inspires you inspires us. We provide a suite of accounting and advisory services dedicated to the total care of your practice. Visit our website to access our tools and resources tailored for dentists, idebailey.com slash dentist. That's E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y dot com slash dentist. This podcast is distributed with the understanding that Art Wiederman, CPA, and Ide Bailey, LLP are not rendering legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Listeners should consult with their business advisors before acting on any of the information or opinions shared. If you have questions and or feedback, make sure to email Art over at awiederman at idebailey.com. That's A-W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N at E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y dot com. You can also give Art a call at 657-279-3243. Without further delay, here's your host, Dental CPA, Art Wiederman. I am your host. I'm very happy to be here. My name is Art Wiederman. I am a dental division director at the CPA firm of Ide Bailey. I've been a dental-specific CPA uh, for 38 years. I've been a dental practice broker for about 17 years. And today, we have a very relevant topic that we're going to talk about. And we're recording here uh, first week of November, and this one will probably air sometime in late November, early December. So not a whole lot's going to change But you might have noticed, folks, that your interest rates have gone up. Interest rates have gone up on car loans and home loans. I mean, when did you ever think you were going to see a 7% home mortgage interest? I mean, it was normal. Home mortgages were 3%. They were three and a half, three and a quarter. Now they're over seven. Credit card interest rates are averaging. I just heard this on the Today Show this morning, over 20%, almost 20%. Uh, car loans are more expensive. Everything's a little more expensive. So my guest today is my good friend, Justin Klingshern, who is um, Vice President in Dental Sales uh, for Bank of America Practice Solutions, which is the largest dental practice lender in the country. Uh, Justin works out of Southern California, and there is nobody better to talk to you about financing. Do you want to buy a practice? Are you going to Uh, expand? Are you going to do a new dental office? Are you going to, uh, well, do you want to refinance your loans? Uh, I don't know about refinancing it, uh, but maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe you got an interest, uh, a high interest rate loan years ago, and it might make sense. We'll see. So we're going to get to Justin in a minute. I want to let you know that we're getting to year-end tax planning time, folks. And if you haven't been sitting down with your CPA, uh, the best time to do it is November, December. We at Ide Bailey, we represent, the firm represents almost a thousand dentists. Our office in Tustin represents close to 300. And we are now launching into almost every day. We're getting on either a Teams call or a, a live meeting with clients and going through year-end tax planning. So we will do a podcast before the end of the year on year-end tax, tax planning with my friend Mel Schwarz from Ide Bailey. I just got to nail him down for a date. Uh, and we are also going to be doing a um, our Business of Dentistry webinar series, the last one. It was going to be on December 2nd, but now it is uh, going to be rescheduled. We will get back to you on what the date's going to be. But um, if this podcast airs after our webinar, you can email me at awiederman, W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N, at idebailey.com. E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y, or call me at 657-279-3243, and we have all of these recorded and ready for you to watch. But if you do need some year-end tax planning and your CPA has not reached out to you, please give me a call, and we will take very good care of you. I also want to thank our wonderful marketing partners, Decisions in Dentistry magazine, www.decisionsindentistry.com incredible clinical content and over 140 fantastic continuing education courses that you can listen to at your leisure for a very, very reasonable price. Go to www.decisionsindentistry.com. 
One more thing I want to tell everybody about again, and I'm seeing this more and more. If you are being called, receiving phone calls from a company that is telling you that you qualify for the employee retention tax credit for every quarter of 2020 and all the three quarters of 2021. I've been talking about this. If you're one of our thousands of listeners on the podcast, I've been talking about this for now a year and a half and, and this topic for the last couple of months. There are a lot of bad players out there who are telling you that if your hair is green and blue, you qualify for the employee retention tax credit. Uh, if you had uh, supply chain issues or if you had social distancing and, and things like that, most of you have done better in 2021, did better in 2021 than you did in 2020. And I would be uber careful about having someone come to you at another one, $146,000 credit. And I just said, you know, I'm just not feeling the love for this. Just be very, very careful. Because we know that some of these shops are not going to be in business in five years when the statute of limitations runs. And then you get audited and you go back and they're not there and you don't know where they are. And you have to write a big check back to the government. Just be very, very careful. Be sure to check out our new I'd Bailey podcast, Ebb and Flow, a business podcast providing inspired insight on issues and trends the middle market faces. Hear unique business stories, get answers to frequently asked and unasked questions, and understand business topics that matter to you. Available now on your favorite podcast platform. All right. Well, I'm going to get to my guest right now, who is my good friend, Justin Klingshorn from Bank of uh, I should pronounce my guest names right. Justin Klingshern from Bank of America Practice Solutions. I've known Justin for many years. And uh, like I say, Justin is a vice president. And at the moment, he specializes in helping doctors to uh, who are buying practices to do practice acquisition financing. But we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about interest rates. We're going to talk about startups and uh, we're going to start up uh, talking about expansions and remodels and what's going on in the economy. So, Justin Klingshern, Klingshern, right? Yeah, you've got it. See, I, I do, I do number. I tell you, I do numbers much better than I do letters. So, yeah, I, 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 I mispronounced a. One of my good friends is 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 Mike Unthank. He's in uh, he's a dental or a dental architect uh, in in Omaha, and, and I, I spelled his name wrong. I said the same thing. I, said, I don't do letters. I do numbers. So. But you're a numbers guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's where we align. And so I you're you having me on the pod. Well, I appreciate it too. So uh how's life in San Diego? You're in San Diego, right? How's life in you, right. you can right. you were you were in Texas and you now you came to San Diego. Is the weather a little better? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a little cooler in the summer. A little, um, a little yeah. yeah, yeah. I I and I've been on the pod before pre COVID, but yeah. my history with the bank and with dental finance for that matter is I started in Ohio, um, working as an account manager, moved to Texas, ran a six-state territory at one point down to four, then one. Stayed there for about six years. I did all sorts of dental financing, from acquisitions to startups to project, real estate. Moved down to Southern California. I live in San Diego, primarily focused on the SoCal market, although I do do work nationwide. So I do have quite a bit of experience, both in product and then just logistically across the country. Well, we are going to tap on that experience today, my friend, because things have changed in the last 12 months. So let, let's start the conversation. So uh, yesterday, now again, this is not yesterday when this podcast is going to air. There are days I wish it would air live, but it doesn't. Um, yesterday, um, the Federal Reserve, first week of November, raised the federal funds rate for the fourth Fourth time this year? Was it third or fourth? I think it was the fourth, right? I, I think that's right. Yeah. By 75 basis points. And again, folks, for those of you that don't know, a basis point is one one hundredth of a percent. So 75%. So, Justin, you are the banker on the call. Would you explain to our audience who maybe don't understand? You know, they know the Fed raised the rates, but what is the rate they raised? What does it mean? And, and how does it tie to dental loans. I know I mean we understand that home mortgage interest rates if you want to get a home mortgage uh, a home mortgage right now it is over 7% and uh, 
And um, if you want to buy a car, it's probably five, six percent or more. Who knows? But how does it affect dental? So talk about all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So the Fed raised rates again, right? It's 75 basis points, which is three quarter of a point in order to tame demand, which is a byproduct, the crazy demand of the inflation that we're seeing. So having said that, this is just a, a tool in the toolbox the Fed has. Um, that is the rate at which banks borrow from the Fed, and then banks can earn interest by storing money in the Federal Reserve. So there are benchmarks. There's an upper bound and a lower bound. There's an effective federal funds rate. And you know, right now, I believe the target after this raise was around four. Now, right. having said that, there is an indirect but pretty clear correlation between the, the rates and this just general cost of borrowing. So when doctors ask me about the Fed raising rates and what it means for their interest rate, there's not always a one-to-one relationship, nor does it always impact in the moments after the Fed raises rates. There's an indirect secondary market happening with the, the most closely the Fed tracks with the three-month T-bill. We normally look at, and for doctors listening, the 10-year treasury note, right? So your interest rate is likely going to be more related to that than it is anything else, as is in the case of mortgages. So mortgages have historically tracked with this note, the 10-year treasury, and that's basically just a bond, right, that pays a fixed coupon um, you know, every month. That's money that you're lending to the government. But needless to say, if you're trying to look at any sort of economic indicator for rates, right, look at that 10-year T-note. That does not bode well for a lot of the economic indicators, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're looking to tame inflation, right? Right. So that's why you see the inverted yield curve and that people are expecting rates to be lower in the future because in the short term, you know, there might be some turbulence up ahead. So, and I know the Fed is talking about another rate increase in the month of December, and again, this podcast, uh, we haven't decided which date's going to be in, probably in December. They're going to meet again. The The market committee is going to meet, and they are talking about maybe this time a 50 basis point increase. But they, they really haven't given a huge indication of where this is going. I mean, it, it's, you know, so, so how does it affect dental loans? In other words, I know being a, a broker and being someone who, who works with the dentist, uh, I know that that interest rates for dental loans are not anywhere near what they are for home mortgages. Mm-hmm. Um, so how where are we? And, and again, I know that that there's a lot that goes into rates and uh, different people get different rates based on their credit and the deal. and so, so wh- where where are we now as far as if someone wants to buy a practice, mm-hmm. um, what are we looking at? A product? Yeah, yeah, no, good question. Um, Obviously, all deals are risk rated, right? So the lower the risk, the lower the rate. Um, generally speaking, again, I'd reference that 10-year uh, from a correlation between what that secondary market is doing and how banks are pricing. Oftentimes, bank borrow. Bank borrows directly from the Fed. They lend it out to the market. But to, I guess make it simple, rates right now are going to be in the fours, somewhere in the fours. I mean, that, that's yeah. not expensive money. I mean, if, if I can get a four-year loan for 10 years, I mean, that that's really good. So in, in, the, in yeah. the fours, depending, you say, so what are the factors that the bank looks at as to whether it's 4.1, 4.9? What, what are you looking at? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's a number of different factors there. But when we speak to risk rating, we speak of just the kind of risk that we're taking on. So, for instance, the doctor that does $3 million in collections, they're only looking to borrow $500,000. Their practice is pretty much debt-free. That doctor is likely less of a risk than a doctor looking to do a startup for the first time, right, who has no patients, no revenue, and they're borrowing $700,000 to do a startup. Right. Okay, so let's get into uh, – we're going to cover two main areas here. We're going to start with the – startups, remodels, expansions, and then we're going to get deep into the weeds about acquisitions. So let's let's talk about startups. So you just made the comment that if someone's starting up a practice, there's more risk because they've never been a business owner. They don't have any patients. They don't have any revenue. So 
what does what advice can you give to to young dentists? And we have a lot of young dentists who listen to this podcast um, who are thinking about somewhere in the country starting up their first practice. Um, they come to you and they say, "Okay, Justin, I want to do this." You know, what is your average startup looking like cost wise, and and what are we telling them, and and what are rates and stuff like that? So, talk a little bit about startups. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. We do get a lot. Uh, startup costs are going to vary across the country. Construction costs vary, just as home prices vary. Equipment it varies a little bit, but mostly it's construction. That's where the big variance comes into play. Um, a doctor normally will get will apply for, let's just say, a, a startup for six hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars. Your specialist, it does in fact go up, gets you up to seven fifty, oftentimes. But the main thing that that I would say is that you're look, you're buying potential. You're ideally going into a market that's growing. Perhaps there's a neighborhood where they're building out communities near you. Um, the one thing that I always say to anybody looking to do a startup is, do you have the fortitude? to stick with it for two, three years? And then secondly, have you done an appropriate demographics and competition analysis? So I like to refer to Dentographics, that's dentographics.com, just for demographic reports, um, competition assessment. But make sure that you do that, right? Make sure that you you are organized and that you, you at least have somewhat, if not a business plan, a sense of the type of people you're gonna treat and how you're gonna attack them. Okay. So for for someone that's starting up a practice, um, they don't they need to be out of school what a year two years. Uh, they don't have any business experience. Do they need to write up like a business plan? Yeah, yeah, good question again. So the same we look at the same things for anybody looking to do a startup as we do for anybody looking to do an acquisition. Now the toll gates are going to differ to a degree because in the case of an acquisition, they may be looking to borrow one point five million as opposed to a startup for perhaps a third that, right? So we look at credit, production, liquidity, and then their monthly debts. Credit, that's a 700 go or no go. If you do have it, great, you're on to the next condition. If you don't have it, work on it, come back when you're ready. Production, if, if you are going to do a startup, we like to see that you can produce at least $40,000 for the dentistry per month. Now, this isn't the case for specialists. Oftentimes, they can get money right out of school, so right out of residency. We'll give them money. A liquidity, this is a little bit newer, and it adjusts, but this isn't money that we need for the doctor to put down on the project, or in the case of an acquisition, on the practice. This is money that the bank likes to see that that doctor has saved. Typically, this is 5 to 10% of the loan amount. So if you're borrowing a million dollars to do an acquisition, try to have at least $50,000 between cash, marketable securities, that type of thing. How do you guys look at people who they own a practice, they own two, they own three, and they want to start up another one or they want to buy another one? And I know I'm getting mm-hmm. into acquisitions, but so what, what, do, what do banks look at as far as that goes uh, as to whether they're going to make a loan on practice number two, three, or startup location number two, three, what have you? Yeah, yeah. So it's important to differentiate between lending to a first-time practice owner and an owner working on their second, third, or fourth location. If you're looking to give a doctor a loan for a second, third, or fourth location, whether it's an acquisition or a startup, there's a deep assessment of their current situation. So how are they running their practice? Are they increasing revenue and collections year over year? Are they increasing margins? Can that practice pay for its, you know, that doctor's personal and professional, so it's bank debt? Um, and then also, are they ready from a timing standpoint? So what we look at is, well, you know, oftentimes their their first practice, right? Again, things that I had mentioned. Right. And then we pull equity in the case of a second location from that first practice in order to do a startup second location, right? Now, in the case of an acquisition, we don't necessarily need to pull equity out of their current practice. So needless to say, it it's very different based on what you're looking to do. But a good rule of thumb, if you're looking to build a second location, you take your first location and take the amount of debt that you owe and you compare it to your collections. So let's say you have a million dollar practice and you owe $500,000, right? 
the bank, so long as that deal cash flows, meaning the net income of that practice can pay for that next project, can give you up to $500,000 for the next practice. Okay. Now, in the case of an acquisition, you have a million-dollar practice and you owe $500,000. There's not really a limit in that sense of how much you can borrow because it's more a matter of how you can manage that next practice because we're going to be leaning into the equity of the practice that you're buying as it already is a hard asset. If you want to be a multiple practice owner and you want to go to a bank, any bank, your bank, any bank, they're going to want to say, listen, can you can you do the job on practice one, two, and three? Why should I lend you money on number four? Uh, credit's still got to be good. We're going to talk about credit in a little bit. Um, but, 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 you know, we, we just got to look at the, you know, we can use the existing practices if they're successful, if you've grown them to leverage, to, to, to start or buy other practices is what you're telling me, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very nuanced once you get at, you know, post practice one. Um, but ultimately if you have the ability to manage the next acquisition or startup and you've shown that you can do it with one and you have a plan to do it, then there shouldn't be too much of an issue for you getting money for that second or third office. Okay. So now, so we're going to start, we're doing a startup or a second location. Let's just say a startup. When do we call you? Because here's my biggest nightmare. This happened to me once before. It was frightening. So a doctor comes to me and says, so Art, um, I'm doing a startup. I've signed a lease. Oh, great. Well, who are you doing your financing? Well, I don't know yet. Okay, so you've signed a lease, you've committed yourself to the lease for 10 years or whatever, and you don't know if you can get a loan. And then it turned out that this doctor had a short sale and nobody would lend money to him. So so when do they need to come to you in this process? They're going to start up an office. I mean, I'm thinking you're probably, you're probably the first person I got to come to before I go talk to a contractor or an architect or a, um, a landlord, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So in the case of a startup, um, that's another difference between if you're looking to do a project as opposed to an acquisition. You can get approved for that project before making any kind of commitment, right? Before even really selecting a space. You'll want to do that as soon as you have an idea that that's something you want to do. Because to your point, you may be well into a lease and then find that you're unable to secure financing. And I'm sure you've dealt with doctors that are in that position. It is not fun. No. And it is not easy to back out of a lease. So to answer your question, as soon as you're able to apply um, for financing, you apply for financing. And do not sign a lease or a contract to buy anything until you make sure you've got the money. It's pretty much that simple, isn't it, Justin? That's right. Yeah. So let's say that we have doctors who want to buy equipment. Now, I have heard in the industry that because of all of the supply chain and chip issues, that doctors who, and, and this is an interesting point, I think I might have made it on another podcast, is if you're going to if you're going to build out an office, I mean, I'm hearing six, nine month delays in in getting equipment. Is that still going on? Do you hear that? Yeah, they're backed up. I think some of the manufacturers have caught up, but we're still seeing you know equipment pushed out. And again, I don't operate as much in this world as some of my counterparts. Right. But every Becker's release and everything that we're seeing is it's it's still pushing out right now into you know April, May, and which is unprecedented, you know. Yeah, it, it is. And so doctors, that what that means is that so say you sign a lease today, okay? You sign you sign a lease today, and that lease uh, starts, um, you know, maybe your office is going to be built out by February. But if you're not going to get your equipment on, and your computers until June or July, um, you know, you've got to reconsider. You've got to talk to that landlord and say, listen, you know, here's my problem. And I don't want to be paying rent for three months when I'm not open. So these are things that you have to uh, consider. But um, now when, when people borrow, buy equipment, do they go through Shine, Patterson, Benco, or or are they coming to you? Who's doing equipment loans? Is that something you guys do? Yeah, typically if it's associated with a project. So, and 
the event of a startup or a second location, or they're buying a practice, they want to refresh the equipment. We'll often do that financing. But as you know, Shine, Patterson, um, they have separate financing arms. So they'll finance one-off pieces of equipment, typically under $100,000. We like to come in at anything over that number. And, and we had talked about earlier that the, the rates for acquisitions are in the fours. You said startups are a little more risky. Are those a little higher? Are they in the fives? Where are they? You know, it's it's that's again tough. They do change quite often. I mean, you'll. I think that you can still get them in the fours, right? Yeah. Um, to be frank, I haven't priced a startup in some time, but okay. I would still think. I mean, from a from a competitive standpoint, uh, you're you're going to be right there, right around where acquisitions are. Okay. All right. So take a second and tell us a little bit about what you guys do at Bank of America. And folks, again, I I bring folks on this podcast who I've known, who I trust, who take good care of customers. Uh, Like I told you, I I don't get anything for any of this other than the satisfaction that that I can help you with your financial decisions. And, uh, you know, Justin and I have worked together and, and he's just great to work with, as as is the bank. So, talk about you know, what what is be what what do you guys finance? How does it work? And if someone wants to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, of course. So we finance a lot, but within practice. Well, I knew that, but what do you uh, finance? Yeah, right. Yeah. Come on. Within practice solutions in our division, we help dentists um, specifically and other healthcare professionals finance their equipment, their expansion, their acquisitions, their real estate, their startup, right? Any kind of healthcare financing that you'll find that you need with the exception of working capital loans. So in the event you just need some money to pay the bills, that's typically not in our wheelhouse. But for any project or acquisition or real estate, that is what we specialize in. Well, how does the, if, if somebody has a question, they're thinking about doing a project, they're having a problem with their bank or whatever, uh, give out your uh, email address and your phone number, and we'll have that in the show notes also. Uh, how can someone get a hold of you? Yeah, for sure. So as you mentioned, you'll put in the show notes, but um, my number is 512-590-2923. My email address is just my first name, dot last name, at bofa.com, bofa.com. And wherever you are, I'm more than happy to connect you with somebody in your market that specializes in what you're looking to do, whether it's a project or an acquisition. So we have about 50 people in the field um, that are dedicated to meeting with doctors locally and helping them out there. Perfect. Okay. All right, let's continue the conversation. I want to talk about, I mean, you live in the world of acquisitions, and I live in the world of acquisitions. And so what are you seeing with interest rates going up, are you seeing dental practice values going? I mean, theoretically, you know, when when house prices, when house interest rates go up to buy a house, it's more expensive and there's less demand, more supply, and the prices come down. What what are you seeing with dental practices? That's an interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I have not seen an effect yet. That doesn't mean that I will not see an effect. Um, Throughout this whole time post-COVID, I've seen the disparity between the haves and the have-nots grow. So I've seen more practices that have been struggling, right, to to sell, doctors that have really just sort of given up. And then I've seen the guys that, that, you know, really have been crushing it continue to crush it. You've seen a lot of, obviously, you know, DSO growth in certain states. Um, and I'm sure you can speak to that probably yep. quite a bit. Yep. So w- w- with that said, the interest rates, look, they are meant to curb demand, curb spending. At the end of the day, our rates haven't gone up all that much. When you consider all of the expenses of the dental practice, the loan is a small one, right? Typically, right. your lease rate is going to be more. Your wages are certainly going to be more. It's oftentimes in line with what you spend on marketing. So in the grand scheme of things, the interest rates really affect demand for practice prices. They have to, right? But are we seeing much of an effect as to bring prices down? Not yet. 
I'm not seeing it. And and it, it again, we're we're doing a business of dentistry webinar series through Ide Bailey, um, and we're also doing a transition series. Now the transition. Uh, series. We've already done one. Uh, I'm going to be doing the next one a week from Friday, November 11th, which is after this podcast airs. But guys, if you want uh, a copy of that recording, just shoot me an email at awiederman at idbailey.com and we'll get you get you connected. It's on our YouTube page. But I'm not seeing a, a change in values. And the bottom line is, if it's a good practice with a good 35 to 40% net profit, if it's fee for service, if it's in a good area, um, I mean, they're still going for, you know, top dollar in the area. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. And, and again, like you made a really good point, Justin, is that, you know, in a, in a, if a dental practice is grossing a hundred thousand a month and the interest rate goes from 3% to four and a half percent, I mean, what are we talking? We're talking in the hundreds of dollars per month difference, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, not exactly. much. I mean, it's, not, it's not only much. the interest, right? The principal is going to remain fixed. R- so right. You're so you're really you're, just you're... talking about interest. And then at that point, my suggestion was would be to any doctor that, that's burdened by that, um, while not a perfect one, look, if you were going to take a 10-year, consider a 15 or a 20-year. In order for the 10-year, and its payment to match the 20-year, rates would effectively have to like quadruple, right? That's not going to happen. It no. hasn't even come close to happening. So at the end of the day, this is just a very small expense relative to all other expenses within a dental practice. And again, if it's a good dental practice, if it costs you an extra 200, $250 or $300, that's one composite restoration a month. <laughs> Think of it that way. So right, let, let, right. yeah, so 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 let's let's talk about how we evaluate the purchase of a dental practice. So I know that they have what's called a coverage rate, and it's one point two or one point two five. I mean, you live in that world; that's mm-hmm. what you do. And yeah. uh, you know, and I, I want to make one point before we get into this discussion, Justin, is that if Bank of America, if if a practice is listed for a million dollars. And Bank of America says we will loan eight hundred thousand. That now that doesn't mean that the practice is worth eight hundred thousand, right? That's right. Yeah, it, it means that, right. that under the underwrite. I want to be very clear, sellers and buyers understand this: is if you're a buyer and your practice is listed at a million and the bank loans eight hundred, that is because of the underwriting rules of that bank. They will loan that. That doesn't mean it's not worth a million dollars. It's just because under their rules. So talk a little bit, Justin, about how it works. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get yeah. a you get a yeah. practice that's doing a million bucks. Um, it's 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 grossing a million bucks, it's listed for 850. Okay. Mm-hmm. And here in Southern yeah. California, the 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 multiples are higher. And so how do you determine how much the bank is going to lend a buyer? What walk through that? Yeah. It's a good question. And we get this a lot. So a lot of doctors will say, hey, can you do a valuation for us? What, what does the bank think? It's really the bank's job to say yes or no, right? The market price is at which point a seller is willing to sell and a buyer is willing to pay and buy that practice for. So having said that, most banks, including us, can, can really lend up to 100% of that last year's collections on a practice, meaning If a practice collected a million dollars in 2021, it was trending to do about the same. We could lend up to one million dollars for that practice. Now, what often gets missed here is what's included in that number is the working capital. Now, let's assume for a million dollar practice that doctor wants one hundred thousand dollars in working capital. So the absolute most. Really, in practical terms, that a bank could lend on that practice close to nine hundred thousand dollars. Are there exceptions? Of course. Right. But it's the bank's job to say yes or no at that price. Secondly, and you brought this up before, we need to make sure that it cash flows. So if that million-dollar practice is, is throwing off, so if the net income, the seller's discretionary earnings, are about $360,000, right? We then take that number, we back out taxes, and we find out whether or not you as a buyer can pay that you know, for all of your debts, your home debt, your student loan debt, you have cars, that debt, plus the debt 
of the bank loans. We're going to give you money and you'll have to pay us on $360,000 a year, less taxes. So there's a few things that we do as a bank. It's not our job necessarily to put a value on a practice. It's our job really to say yes or no. Um, And it's also important to understand, based on that second thing I talked about, that we may say yes to some doctors, but no to other doctors for the exact same practice. So it's not, and again, doctors, the valuation has nothing to do with what the bank is going to loan. So let's now walk into the next conversation, which is maybe some advice that you might have for some young dentists who are starting their journey to buy a practice. Now, we're going to talk, hold off on the discussion about credit, because I want to get deep into credit here in a minute. But, you know, what are some of the mistakes you see doctors making in buying practices? Um, I mean, I could spend a day on that, unfortunately. But what do you see and what advice a young dentist, you know, they, they've maybe been working in a, in a, in a, in a practice. They're not going to buy it. It's a large practice. It's a group practice. And they want to own their own practice. And, and doctors, I want to encourage you. Even though DSOs are out there and they're knocking on the doors of lots of doctors out there, um, they will not take over dentistry the way they've taken over medicine for a lot of reasons, which I'm going to talk about in my November 11th uh, uh, webinar, uh, but but they're just not. So if you want to buy a practice, you will be able to buy a practice and you'll be able to buy a good one. And I always tell doctors, Justin, 75% of any major decision that you make in your life, I tell this to my two kids, whether it be buy a, buy, you know, marry someone, buy a practice, buy a business, buy a house is in your gut. And if your gut says this is the right thing for me, and even if you have to pay a little more for it, then maybe you think it's worth but your gut says this is the right thing, then you should do it. So what is your advice to young doctors? I'm sure you get lots of them who come to you and at your seminars and your webinars and, and at the conventions. And, and they say, you know, what, 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 what do I do here? I want to buy a practice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really good question. Um, I would say a number of things. One is they're looking for the wrong practice. So oftentimes doctors that really want to like just toe into ownership will only look at smaller practices. Now, smaller practices are typically that way for a reason. They're a bit broken. It takes somebody who is really, really almost willing to otherwise start up quite a bit of fortitude and entrepreneurial spirit to buy that practice and turn it around. And oftentimes, it's the most risk averse people that look at those smaller opportunities. Um, Oftentimes for them, a larger practice is what they're Really more, I guess, a, really what they should buy, right? Now, having said that, um, I would also say that as a buyer, try not to be too picky. I have seen buyers remain on the sidelines for years, right, looking for the absolute most perfect practice. And when it finally comes along, they get outbid by a current practice owner who's able to go above and beyond their bank is able to give them more than you can get from your bank. Right. And oftentimes they get wedged out of deals that just happened about a week ago. I met with the doctor found his dream practice. What do you know? The doctor across the street was just willing to pay more and it ended up selling to that doctor. So having said that, I think looking for the wrong type of practice based on the doctor that you are also just being too picky in the kind of practice that you want There is no perfect practice that exists, right? There is hair on every single deal. Um, And oftentimes, those that are so picky will never end up owning a practice, period. And then on the practical side, a piece of advice, um, again, as it relates to qualifying for a loan, banks want to see your production. They want to be able to gauge it. I know that it's awkward to get your report sometimes, but if you can get ahead of that, and grab your production reports from a few banner months, right, where you could really showcase what kind of work you could do as a clinician, try to get those, to save them. Just one quarter, right? Let's just say it was January, February, March, 2020 um, of production reports, right? So save your production reports and try to do that as quickly as you can without you know, really drawing attention to yourself. 
And that that's really really good advice, uh, doctors. And and you know, the don't be too picky. It's not like houses. There's not a million houses out there to buy. There's a limited number of dental practices. I will tell you the other thing I'm seeing, Justin. I maybe comment to this with the we'll call it economic downturn with inflation, with interest rates going up, uh, with the stock market getting hammered 20 to 25% so far this year, depending on which of the indexes you look at. I am seeing, I talked to two doctors in the last week who said, you know, Art, I was going to put my practice on the market and, you know, I'm down X dollars in my retirement and I'm a little wary and I, I, I think I'm going to work a couple more years. Are you seeing some of that? Yeah, yeah. I, I We just had that seminar for sellers a couple weeks ago and we had a number of people in that room that had been wanting to sell this year that won't be able to sell based on the retirement portfolio. So I do think you're going to see people hanging on for a bit longer right? And obviously that has impacts to the market to a degree, but but I am definitely seeing that. Yeah, I'm seeing it. I think you're going to see it more. And especially if we take a, um, you know, if we have an economic downturn next year, if we have a, you know, they use the recession word technically, I think we may be already in a recession because the, the textbook definition of recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth and growth. And we had that this year. So, but let's talk about credit. I mean, credit is huge in your world. Uh, and we're not talking about debits and credits as a CPA. We're talking about your credit. Now I know you can go on to freecreditscore.com and get your credit and you can get on the internet. And so, but I mean, that's not where you get pull people's credit. So talk about who are you? Who are banks loaning to? How is credit figured out? And how do dentists mess up their credit? Because if they want to buy a practice and their credit score is 600, uh, it may not happen. So talk about credit in your world and how it affects dentists buying or starting up practices. Yeah. Yeah. So again, credit's sort of a benchmark to where if you have an above 700, 720 credit score, you're good. Right, you do that by paying your bills on time, not carrying a lot of credit card debt, just just not avoiding any sort of medical bill that goes unnoticed and unpaid. Um, needless to say, you can check actually your credit once every twelve months. There's a joint venture between the three agencies. It's annualcreditreport.com. Um, there, you can basically get a free credit report once a year. That is legitimate. I will be very wary. Although the credit, some of the credit monitoring sites, we get, um, you know, oftentimes we'll pull a doctor's credit. It might be 670, right? But they have something from Credit Karma showing their credit score is actually 710. So oftentimes those apps can be wrong. Annualcreditreport.com should be right around the number to where, you know, we're pulling it directly from the bureaus. So, uh, and again, as long as you pass, as long as your credit score is above 720, it has very little impact on your rate or your approvability, right? It's more of a go or no-go type metric. Lates on a home mortgage payment is the kiss of death, right? Yeah, that, that's going to affect your credit score quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, every scenario is a little bit different. We can grab a letter of explanation detailing what happened, right? There may have been a dramatic event. Something may have happened that went wonky with your bank, you may be contesting it. So most of those things, if they only happen once, we can explain. But when we see a pattern of behavior and it you know, shows up in your credit report, that's tougher to get around. And oftentimes that's where you'll see credit scores in the five and 600 range. And that is where folks, it might not be a bad idea for your home mortgage to go to your home mortgage lender and put that payment on an automatic debit. So it comes out the first of the month or the you know, whenever the mortgage payment comes out, you don't have to worry about it. You went on vacation, you forgot to write the check. You usually have a grace period. Um, talk about credit card debt. Just I, I, I am just absolutely... I mean, I, I've told my listeners before, I mean, I have, my wife and I each have one credit card. It's got a reasonable limit so we can do, you know, what we need to do. I don't have to worry about it, but it automatically is debited from my bank account on the 20th of the month. 
because I refuse, I repeat, I refuse folks to have credit card debt. It is the devil, um, uh, you know, uh, Kathy Bates talks about the devil in the Waterboy movie, one of my favorite movies ever. And it's the devil. It's it, it's horrible. So how does the bank look at credit card debt? Yeah, not favorably. Um, <laughs> I'm shocked. They, yeah, yeah. I mean, credit card debt is an indication that you're living outside your means. So the income that you're making after you pay your debt and your living expenses just isn't enough. And you'll have to accrue credit card debt to basically live. Um, again, are there ways to explain credit card debt in the event you have a 0% introductory rate and you might have 20 grand of credit card debt and 100 grand in the bank? Of course. But typically, especially today with where rates are, you're not going to see that. And it's more of an indication that you're just living outside your means. Banks across the board do not like it. Um, it is probably the easiest way to disqualify yourself from being able to buy or start up a practice. Okay. So I've had doctors come to me and say, well, I'm using a loan broker to find me the best loan. Now, this is a loaded question. I know that. Um, does a dentist need a loan broker to get a loan to buy or start up a practice? No, I, I, I think the only doctor that needs a loan broker is one that cannot get approved from a conventional lender. Um, and this market is organized enough such that the banks are known, right? They're at the trade shows. You can find them yourselves. Loan brokers are more of a thing of, a path, of the past. Again, for some doctors that have shaky credit, are they necessary to find some of those lenders that they otherwise couldn't find? Because they're more hard money lenders. Um, sure, I do, I do believe they serve a purpose, but not for most dentists. I believe they serve a purpose for the dentist that's been that's fallen upon some financial hardship that might not be able to get approved from you know your Bank of Americas of the world. Okay, so I know that SBA makes loans. Um, do you need it? I mean, does it make any sense to go to SBA to buy a practice? You know, not often. That, not that's often. what I find, too. Yeah, yeah. They, they, the SBA typically does require either an injection or a carryback at 10%. You also have to pay a guarantee fee of 3%. Obviously, it's quite cumbersome given the SBA. The only advantage is that the SBA has access to longer terms for practice loans. So oftentimes, you can find the SBA issuing a 25 or a 30-year note. Typically, though, the SBA is going to be a player in the real estate financing game um, or for the doctors that just simply can't get approved from your conventional lenders. So let, let's talk about real estate because I'm going through a couple of real estate loans right now uh, with, with some clients. Um, so I know there's two ways to finance real estate. Talk about let's talk about SBA and let's talk about conventional. So what, what are the differences, advantages, disadvantages? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. An SBA loan is, is essentially federally backed. So the government is guaranteeing that loan. Um, and for that assurance, you pay a 3% guarantee fee back to the SBA. Um, now, having said that, again, super cumbersome. It's good for a business owner that isn't a doctor that might be more high risk. So and the SBA, for that matter, was created to really spur economic activity for small business owners to start up small businesses. Now, as more and more businesses have started and, and really banks and lenders can assess a risk rating um, to each business, some of those businesses shouldn't you know, need to deal with the SBA and are better as a conventional risk. And one of those businesses are, are dental practices. So because of their performance and the success and because of really dentistry being able to make it through COVID um, largely untouched, most banks are going to lend conventionally, meaning, you know, just, just without involving the SBA uh, to these practices. And oftentimes with lower fees, with lower rates, with a better ease of process. 
So let's say I have a building, uh, and, and and let's talk about it. So I'm, I'm buying a practice, and there's real estate. And, and I, what I'm finding is a lot of doctors want to buy the real estate with the practice. Now, in Southern California, where I live and where you live, that's harder because of the stupid increase of real estate values. Mm-hmm. But in, you know, most, and, and in Northern California, the Bay Area is the same. Uh, New York City is the same. But but a lot of other areas, it is very realistic to buy the real estate. Now, uh, so, um, you know, with that said, number one, so if I have a practice that's got a good net and maybe the valuation is in, it's in the Midwest and it's maybe it's 70%. So maybe it's a million dollar practice and it's 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 going at 700,000. Can I actually pull some of the money I've heard um, from the dental practice to make the down payment? Because I know I've heard in some cases, and I don't know if they still do it, that you can almost do 100% financing on the the real estate and the practice together if, if, if all the planets align. Do they still do that? Yeah, yeah. No, actually, your, your timing is great here. We, we did roll out that product for first-time practice owners again a couple days ago. So even as a first-time practice owner, you have the ability to do that. Now, of course, you do have to have equity in the practice that you're buying. Um, but to answer your question, yeah. I mean, and especially if you own your own practice today, you don't have a lot of debt on it. Again, let's use that 100% marker. So if you have a practice collecting a million dollars and you owe $700,000 on it, technically you can borrow up to you know really $300,000. So take a million minus 700, you're left with 300. That's what I would consider your practice equity. You want to buy a piece of real estate and let's say it's for a million dollars. The bank can give you a loan for 80% of that million. That's 800. And then they'll attach some of that $300,000 that is your practice equity onto the real estate. So at the end of the day, that's a long way to say we can do 100% financing for an established practice owner and for a first-time practice owner so long as there's enough practice equity. So so I guess the best advice that I can give to our listeners and that you can give, Justin, because by law, you and I are required to uh, agree on everything, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, say yes. Right. Say yes. The answer is yes. See, I'll, I'll coach yes. you through the answers here. So um, it is before you start the journey, doctors, before you go in and find the practice. I mean, I and I know you guys do this and a lot of the banks do this is go to Justin, go to go, go to these guys and say, listen, this is my vision. I want to build a six operatory startup practice in um, Carlsbad, California. Um, I, I talked to a contractor. It's going to it's going to run me seven hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, what do I need to do so that this loan is not an issue? Or I want to buy a practice in, um, you know, San Mateo, California or you know Omaha, Nebraska. And I think I want it to be doing a million. It's going to be worth about seven hundred thousand from what I hear. What do I need to do in that? I mean, you will talk to young dentists all day long. Right. As far as saying, OK. Let me, I mean, can you even pull their credit and say, this is where you're at, or this is what you need to fix? Do you do that a lot? We don't do that a whole lot. Normally they know where they're at. If they're asking questions about their credit, there are likely issues with their credit. And again, that annualcreditreport.com is a pretty good resource for them to get a credit report. Okay. So, so it's, but, but if a dentist doesn't know, you can certainly answer questions and you'll, you'll give your number out one more time when we're done here. So now I want to talk to sellers of dental practices. Okay. Sellers, I'm talking to you. Um, maybe you ran stuff through the practice. Maybe there's stuff that shouldn't have gone through the practice that was, I, I used to have a client. I know I've said this on the podcast before, just, I used to have a client they got audited one year and they told me that they have a business account. And I said, what the heck is a business account? And they said, well, it's a combination of business and personal. It's business. Art, don't you know what that is? I go, well, no. now I do. So we have doctors, when you put stuff through underwriting, Justin, that have business accounts, I'm sure that you and I could spend another hour just talking about the strange stuff you've seen go through dental practices. But so when you look at the 2021 tax return, okay, and you look at the profit of the practice and it's like 200,000 and the seller says, 
well, wait, wait, wait a minute. No, no, no. It's, it's really 300 because I get all this stuff. Mm-hmm. How does the bank look at that? Um, and then I'll make a, another comment when you're done with that. Yeah, yeah. Good question. Comes up all the time. So that's why we have an ad back sheet, right? Oftentimes expenses are inflated um, or placed incorrectly or in the case that your spouse, let's just use air quotes, works in the practice, right. that may very well be an ad back, right? That basically is an expense that you had that the new owner won't have. So we can add that back into the cash flow. Now, we can't push the limit here. So it's not as if we get an ad back sheet. You went down every single expense category and you identified $100,000 potential ad backs. You know, we may only give you credit for 60000 So you, you won't be able to basically add back everything that you've been writing off. But of course, there are some of those classic ad backs and some of the standard ones too, just like your car, right? That's an expense. Practice was likely paying for it. Um, The new owner won't have that expense because they already have a car payment and we're factoring that into the debt service model. Um, The last thing I'll say is that I just got off the phone last week with the doctor and they told me it's a two-doctor practice, and they're collecting about $650,000, and they're looking to buy a second location. And we had problems with the cash flow, right? So it just it, it wouldn't work, their current situation. It was, you know, the cash flow of the practice was showing largely that they were losing money. They were unable to pay their own bills. And the doctor called me late the night uh, I talked to him about this, and he said, well, Justin, I got something to tell you. I, I you know, that, that really isn't the number, right? There's, there's a lot of cash there in the practice um, that, that's going unreported. Mm. Unfortunately, the bank will never give you credit for that, right? So in the event you are taking cash payments and you're not claiming it as income, right? The bank will never be able to count that income, period. So just my thoughts on that. Yep, and, and doctors, here's my thoughts. If you have won the war, for 30, 35 years against the IRS, and you have minimized your tax liability, and we'll use the term right, wrong, or otherwise, my recommendation to you, and um, I've heard other bankers say the same thing, and I think Justin will probably echo this. So you've won the won the war for 35 years. The bank is going to look at the last couple of years of your tax returns in evaluating what they're going to lend to a buyer, maybe one or two years before the time that you're going to sell, you might dial it back a bit. Maybe don't run all the trips to Costco through or the vacations or the, you know, what whatever else it is, because number one, it's going to make your practice bottom line look bigger. It's going to make your practice more attractive. It's going to give you more potential suitors to your practice. Whereas if your bottom line is zero and yeah, you're not paying any taxes, but then you don't have any profit. So, I mean, is that a good uh, analogy, Justin? Yeah, I like that a lot. I might use it. So last thing I want to touch on because we're running out of time here is talk to me about the difference between using a specialty yeah, dental. And, and this has not only to do with, with dental lenders, but with all, I mean, dental CPA, dental attorney, dental um, uh, contractor, people that have worked in this space before. What's the difference between a doctor just walking into their local bank and getting a loan? I mean, I'll give you an example. I just, I just talked to a doctor yesterday who they are actually financing a, a buy-in of a partner and it's a bank they've done business with for 30 years and they're in the community, they're entrenched. And that partner is paying a 7.4% interest rate. That's crazy. But they they don't want to do business because with anybody else because it's going to make them mad and stuff like that. So what is the difference between working with a specialty lender and just walking into your local bank in uh, uh, Muskegon, Indiana? I think Muskegon, I think that's a city mm-hmm. and I think that's in Indiana. I just made that up off the top of my head. Um, what's the what's the difference between a specialty lender, a dental specialty lender, and a just walking in your local bank? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and, and the market's become a little more organized. That we're getting this less and less, but 
generally speaking, dental practices can be really complex, right? And, and you might be very complex in your clinical performance. You so, have no idea how complex I am, Justin. And there you go. So yeah, you need to be speaking to a CPA specialty lender. Um, so having an underwriter, having a business development guy, having an account manager that can understand the vernacular around dentistry is critically important. And you know what it means too, is that those banks have a good understanding of the actual risk associated with the money lent to that business. And it's very low. So oftentimes, especially today, the specialty lenders will be lending at lower rates than the local banks. Um, yeah. Local banks, again, they can have their time and place just as the SBA can. And again, I feel like I was ragging on the SBA there a little bit. The SBA, look, it's an incredible resource if you're looking to, to mortgage um, a building on 30 years or if you can't get approved from a conventional lender, right? And by the way, specialty lenders have access to the SBA products as well, just as yep. we do. But yep. ultimately, look, when it comes to working with a specialty lender or a local bank, you know, it, don't let me be the guy that tells you, go apply, right? At least apply with a specialty lender like Bank of America and let us show you how we're different. You and I could talk for days and, and when you and I get together, we we normally do spend a couple hours solving the problems of the world, but uh, your information as usual is spot on. I really appreciate it. One more time, give out your email and your contact information, your phone number. Uh, doctors, if you're thinking about any type of financing for your dental practice, uh, and you're not really sure you know, where to go, what to do, what you need, are you going to get the loan? Uh, give Justin a call. Justin, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah. Yeah. So my direct line again, my name is Justin Klingshern. My number, my cell phone number is 512-590-2923. My email address is just firstname.lastname at bofa.com. And whether or not you want to talk to me or have me put you in touch with somebody locally, I'm more than happy to do that. You can call me day, night, weekend. I'm always available. But thanks, Art. I appreciate you uh, having me and, and, and everything. No, Justin, just hang with me till I take the podcast out. And uh, folks, yeah. thank you again for the honor and privilege of your time. Again, we, we get calls and emails all the time about the podcast. I think we're doing the right thing. Um, my gosh, a month from now, we will hit four years on the air four years that we've been doing this. Uh, it is a labor of love. It love. It's joy to me uh, to help you get to your goals. This is my legacy. I've told you this over and over again. That's the God's honest truth. Um, again, I know we're, we're, we're near the end of the year. If you want access to our uh, webinar series, both on transitions, which we talk about, you know, things like this. Justin will actually be on my webinar November 11th, talking a little bit about loans and some of the stuff you heard today. Um, and uh, we're also doing the Business of Dentistry webinar series. Uh, email me at a Wiederman, W I E D E R M A N, at Eid Bailey, which is E I D E. B-A-I-L-L-Y dot com or call me at 657-279-3243. Do remember again, folks, go on to our wonderful partners, Decisions in Dentistry Magazine, uh, 140 continuing education courses at a very, very reasonable rate. Best clinic clinicians in the world are on this magazine talking about state-of-the-art dental procedures and topics. Um Dental CPA, my my group, the Academy of Dental CPAs, we just had our meeting in Miami. It was wonderful. www.adcpa.org. And with that, again, I'm going to bid you adieu for today. We have several really, really great topics coming up on the podcast. I'm, I'm excited about uh, what we're going to be doing into 2023. And we look forward to hearing from you on email. Give, and give us a call. This is Art Wiederman, CPA, signing off. See you next time. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Art of Dental Finance and Management podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. The Art of Dental Finance and Management podcast is produced by Ide Bailey in partnership with Art Wiederman, CPA, Decisions in Dentistry Magazine, and the Academy of Dental CPAs. For audience questions and feedback, email Art Wiederman, awiederman at idebailey.com. That's A-W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N at E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y.com. Or you may call Art at 657-279-3243.